This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I might be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. And now to Romans 16, 25, 27. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes through faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Great, thanks very much uh, for that, Florence. Um, And welcome, if uh, if you're new uh, or if I've not met you before, my name is Steve. Uh, It's really exciting to, to have so many people here. Um, so I'm just going to pray <laughs> and that you're able to hear what I'm saying because I'm not speaking at the rate of knots. So uh, Jesus, we thank you for um, this book. We thank you for this series which we've been studying in Romans, all that you've taught us. Um, I pray that the words that you still have to teach us today would be able to hear them. Uh, yeah, amen. amen. So uh, my wife Jo and I, we watched um, a film this week, midweek. Um, which is actually quite a big deal because we've got a five-month-old, so it kind of like feels like when I was at school at 11 and you boast like about how late you'd stayed up during the night. It's like, have you heard? Jono stays up to like 11 o'clock in the middle of the week. It's like, have you heard? Joe and Steve watched a film in midweek. It's like, yeah, that's right, we did. Uh, we watched um, The Theory of Everything, uh, which is uh, it's excellent. All the Oscar films, from all the nominees and winners from last Oscars are coming out now on Netflix, so we've got loads to watch. 
Uh, and this is a film about um, Professor Stephen Hawking. The guy on the left uh, is Eddie Redmayne, who won an Oscar for Best Actor. Um, I'm sure you'll have, uh, most people will be aware of, uh, of Professor Stephen Hawking, but he's a famous physicist. Um, and the film tells the story of his time at Cambridge University, uh, where he was diagnosed with um, something called motor neuron disease, which takes away the ability to use your muscles and eventually your speech. He was given two years to live, um, all the way through much later to the release of his book, A Brief History of Time. And he's still alive. He's 75, so he's massively outlived this diagnosis. Um, and how he overcomes the adversity of it. And essentially the focus of the film is totally that he's single-minded in his ambition uh, to find an equation which explains black holes or time or something that bit's uh, less relevant. But we find... <laughs> We find in books and films uh, about great people that they're often driven by ambition. So I've started reading a book on um, Horatio uh, Nelson at the moment, and it says a bit in the beginning about how his ambition was for glory, and he made a lot of decisions in his life based on his ambition. And um, often when we read uh, stories or watch films, um, it involves people with remarkable talents, but it's often their drive, their persistence, and their ambition that makes the story worth hearing. But actually, I don't think that ambition is something that's reserved to people who live these great celebrity lives. I think we're all driven by ambition. Ambition is essentially the strong desire to do something. So if you've ever focused on, if only, if only uh, I could move to this town, if only I could get this job, if only I could get married, then that's ambition. It's often the way we choose uh, the directions we want our life to take. It's my ambition to get married, so I'll go on dates. It's my ambition to live abroad, so I'll learn a foreign language. I remember when I was young... Uh, I did a paper round, and there was a computer game I really wanted, which was like 50 quid, which even now seems extortionate. Uh, but I earned like 10 quid a week. And I just remember being like, oh, it's only like, th- I hate my paper round. I, d- I spent two nights a week doing it. I remember being like, oh, it's only like three weeks till I can get the game. It's only two weeks till I can get the game, and then everything will be okay. And actually, it kind of was, because it was a really good game. But as an adult, like, I've been driven by ambition as well. I'm um, a big fan of writing uh, a year plan, uh, things I'd like to see happen throughout the year. Most of them don't happen. Um, but I'm driven by these ambitions. So a lot of my adult life, I've been driven by the desire to buy a house, to start my career, and to start a family. Now, those ambitions are okay, but not all ambitions are good ambitions. We get talked uh, to by Paul elsewhere um, about the dangers of selfish ambition. But ultimately, we use ambitions to prioritize our life. Some are stronger, some weaker, some passing, some good, some bad. But if you showed me a week plan or maybe a month plan of your life, I should be able to work out what some of your ambitions are, what some of your priorities are by the way that you spend your time. But throughout this passage, Paul reveals to us what his ambition is. So through this series, it should have become uh, really apparent to us that Paul is absolutely, totally and utterly single-minded about the gospel. Now, the gospel literally means for good news, and in the earlier chapters, Paul has reminded the Romans what this good news is. Although man was made to be with God, since the first human, Adam, we've been sinning, and that sin actually separates us from God, so we can't get close to him. And there's nothing we can do in terms of good deeds that will get rid of this sin in our life. The Jews had the law, and they thought, oh, if only I could be really good at at doing the law in my life, then God would be able to look at me and say I'm righteous. But instead, humankind finds itself living in this broken life and ultimately headed for death. However, God sent his own son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we would never be able to live. And then he died for us, and ultimately he became a sacrifice of sin, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sin in our lives, but instead he sees that Jesus has taken the sin for us if we believe that Jesus is our saviour. And Jesus was then resurrected, and he offers this too as well, so just as our old sinful life is now dead, we're resurrected and can live this new life with him, with God's Holy Spirit in us. Paul mentions the gospel about 75 times across the letters that he writes in the Bible. 
And since his conversion at the time of him writing this letter, he's been on three missionary trips around the countries of the Mediterranean, spreading the good news about Jesus. So we can see from looking at his life that the gospel lives in him as a central ambition. You can look at the time he spent and say that's clearly a big thing for him. In verse 20, Paul tells the Roman church that his specific ambition, his particular drive, is to preach the gospel, this good news about Jesus, where Christ was not known. Now, there is something undeniably specific to Paul and his calling in this passage. In Acts 9, we're told the story of Paul. If you don't know it, he was uh, a young man named Saul. He was a zealous Jew, and he was persecuting the early Christians. He hated this new Christian faith that had centered up around Jesus, to the point of he was a willing witness to the death of the first Christian martyr. And he was actually on his way to persecute more Christians in a city called Damascus. When Jesus met him on the road as a bright light, he was blinded. Jesus asked him, why are you, following, uh, why are you persecuting me? He went away for three days, uh, and then an early Christian named Ananias went and prayed for him, at which point he received his sight again. He accepted Jesus as his saviour. And Ananias also gave him his calling. He was told, hey, you are going to be the instrument that God uses to bring my gospel to the Gentiles, which is basically the non-Jews. And he sticks with this calling. Paul's told us now that his specific desire is to continue with this calling of uh, giving the good news out. N.T. Wright describes Paul as like one of the early American pioneers, So when we think of uh, those people who came over from Europe and started settling in the USA, they were basically on the uh, the east coast they started, because that's the side they came from, and they were having to, as as they moved further and further west across the nation, settling it and starting up new states, they were going to territories that they knew absolutely nothing about. They were going across mountains that hadn't been named. They were building roads through forests where roads hadn't been built before. When Joanna and I moved to Cheltenham, and before that when we moved to Bracknell, we were thinking, well, who knows? Who do we know in those places? Who can we ask about what the churches are like there? And people are like, oh, this church is good, this church is good, you can plug in with these people there. And there were things already set for us. But spiritually speaking, Paul is like a pioneer in a sense. He's going somewhere where there aren't churches that he can settle in. He's going to be the one to plant the churches. So I think it can be easy to look at this and say, well, Paul has a very specific calling on his life. So whilst it's fun to read about it, that was, that's what we're doing. We're just reading someone else's story. But it's not just that. It's like Paul is writing to us about what he's doing, but it's on a topic that concerns everyone. He's not wasting words. You pretty much were paying by the word, by the letter, uh, in ancient times for letters, because you know this would have been carried by someone. And at 7,000 words, Romans was the longest letter that we've still got from ancient times. I think as we read on, we'll see that Paul is calling the Roman church and us as readers to be caught up in the greatness of God's plan in making the gospel our ambition. So um, Howard every week uh, pretty much has complained about how difficult it is to keep time on Romans because there's just so freaking much in it, and that really is true, I now see. So I've just picked up four things that I think Paul is saying to catch us up in this greater picture as part of what he's doing, but I'm sure there are more. So the first one is, I think he tells us to gospel ourselves, basically to tell ourselves for good news over and over again, even when we believe it. So I was struck when I was reading about Paul's story in Acts. He, um, he retells it twice, in Acts 22 and Acts 26, uh, he's brought before different rulers and asked to give an account of what he's doing. And he, he basically doesn't pull his punches. He tells everyone of the details. So he said, hey, listen, like, these were rulers who were saying, like, what are you doing? It's bad. And he was saying, hey, I've met God. I've met Jesus. Jesus stopped me in the road. And um, both times he includes his calling in that. He doesn't just say, that's what happened. That's why I'm a Christian. He says, and here's why I'm doing it, because Jesus has told me to bring the good news to non-Christians. If we look at it, his salvation is absolutely life-changing. It's contagious and it's life-changing. He's gone from being called a man called Saul to getting a new name. He's gone from being someone who kills Christians to someone who makes Christians. And it made me think, how do we feel when we had our salvation? I don't know if everyone here 
knows Jesus, but I know that most, I know that a lot of people are saved. How did you feel when you were saved? How did you first feel when you were saved? I was um, 15 when I first met Jesus, and um, I was just a really normal teenage boy doing really normal teenage boy stuff um, with my really normal teenage uh, boy friends who are boys. Um, <laughs> and I just, I wasn't particularly bad, I, you know, like, I wasn't evil, but I, was, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't good either. And um, I remember when I found Jesus, I went on this summer camp, and I met Jesus, and it just absolutely changed me. If, you've, if you have met Jesus, you'll know what it feels like when you first met him. It's, it's changed. You go, it's not like you go from being thinking about it, yeah, I think I can see what they're saying. Yeah, do you know what? Okay, I'll believe. It's this massive thing. It's supernatural. Of course it is. And I went like that. I was changed. I came back, and I remember telling my friends, I've been changed. I've been absolutely changed. I've met Jesus. I'm not going to do this in my life anymore. I'm not going to do this in my life anymore. I remember saying to them, I'm going to convert you. And they were actually like quite open to like me saying that stuff, which is crazy, isn't it? That's supernatural as well, but I had changed. And some days I think I still live in that excitement about the gospel. There are times where I'm praying or where I'm reading the Bible, and um, there are times where I'm like, oh my goodness, like I feel the gospel so much. I feel like I could go on the street now and tell people about the good news. And actually, there's probably no reason for me not to do that. But a lot of days I don't. A lot of days I think if someone looked at my life and said, well, what's different about this guy because he's been saved? They might say nothing. And I want to be living more in that excitement, this contagious gospel that Paul is living in. I love what he says in verse 13 of chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. For Paul, meeting Jesus wasn't the extent of his Christianity, it was the start of it. When I read this passage and wonder how it is that Paul finds the strength to go on with his ambition for spreading the good news, this verse really speaks to me. Of course, it's the gospel for those of us who believe. It sustains. We must gospel ourselves. That's why he's saying it to these Romans. These Romans already know it. They already know the good news, but he's telling them the good news again. And Paul trusts that through this good news, God will create missionary congregations. This church in Rome is one that um, he's not met yet. Actually, no apostle was involved in the setting up of this church. So the apostles were the early disciples of Jesus who were given this mandate of going and planting the church. But they think that the church in Rome uh, was actually set up by Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit was first given to the disciples, and that they had gone back to Rome. Uh, They might have had Gentile slaves or Gentile friends, non-Jewish slaves and friends, who also picked up this message from them. Um, In chapter 16, there's a bit which we're, we're not we've not looked at, which is basically a list of people in the Roman church who Paul um, is greeting. And we can see from this list that the church was made up of Jews, it was made up of Gentiles, it was made up of men and women leaders, it was made of rich men and poor men. But they also think, looking at this, that it might have only been about five households strong, so it's possible that this early Roman church was about the size of God first, a hundred adults. And yet this was a church in the biggest city in the world. Over one million people, it was actually the biggest city that the world ever saw until the 19th century when London overtook that figure. And yet Paul trusts that God is enough for these guys, these 100 or so people, to be full of goodness, knowledge, and to be able to instruct one another. How does that make us feel as one church of many in a town of just 120,000? He says that he's reminded them of some key points. Now, we know from some of the earlier sessions that we've done that he's had to remind them about unity and loving one another and not getting focused on small issues. But the key thrust of Romans has been this good news to remind these people who have already heard the good news of the good news of how Jesus saves by faith and how once we're saved, we're dead to sin, but given the chance to live our lives by the Spirit. So Paul reminds us that we need to tell the good news to ourselves again, church. 
when I'm feeling tired, when I'm feeling too busy or lacking in vision, I need to be filled with all peace and joy as I trust in God. I need to be reminded how excited I felt, how excited I can be by the good news. We had some great news over Christmas of um, Joe's sister, who'd been praying for for about 10 years, uh, had become a Christian. And, oh man, it was such a good year for me last year. But this, seriously, this is one of the best things. It, fe- it just felt like it had been so long since I'd seen salvation. She's someone we've been praying for for like 10 years. And two or three years ago, she told us she didn't believe in God. And then she tells us this miracle that she believes in the Lord. And I got so excited by the gospel again. And it, the gospel begets itself. Yes. If we're not involved in this, there's something we're missing. So that's point one. We need to gospel ourselves. Tell the good news to ourselves. Point two, with the grace of God. Now, another thing I think it can be easy to do, I find, when I read about Paul, is to convince myself that because Paul had all the right giftings, it was easy for him. You know, if if I had been stopped by this bright light and made blind for three days, uh, if I'd been given this specific calling, if I'd been given all the evangelistic giftings that Paul had, then I'd probably be a super good evangelist too. But he wasn't actually some perfect evangelistic machine. In Corinth, where he's writing this letter to the Romans, we're told that it was said his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. <laughs> Jews found it difficult to hear from Paul because they thought his message was sullied by his association with the non-Jews. And non-Jews found it difficult to hear from Paul because they thought he had this whole Jewish thing going behind him and he was going to tell them to do this, this and this. In Acts 9, after Paul's conversion, we're told that he tried to tell the Jews in the city about the good news, and um, they tried to kill him, and actually the other believers in Jerusalem had to tell Paul to leave the city, at which point the church in Jerusalem really grew in size and strength. So it's almost like his first stab at evangelism, he was so bad that they tried to kill him, and once they sent him away, they started doing better. So he wasn't like some super evangelist. But in verse 15, when Paul reminds the Romans of his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles, and gives that as the reason for which he's written the letter... He tells him it's only through the grace of God by which he's seen success. We can't focus on becoming Christian superheroes. This is another reason why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. In Corinthians, we're told God's grace is sufficient for us, for his power is made perfect in weakness. Phil Moore writes, When we leave our own strength in the tomb and let God raise us to life with his own strength instead, there is no limit to what we can achieve for the increase of his kingdom. So point two, we can only do it with the grace of God, but the grace of God is there for us. Point three, I have to actually write it down, something along the lines of be secure in our identities as part of the greater plan that God has. And I love this bit because there are times when you read Paul and you're like, uh, I wrote here, there are times you read Paul and you want to say, I can see how someone could read Paul and think, is he being arrogant? But there are times when I read Paul and think, is he being arrogant? In verse 17, Paul tells us that he glories in Christ Jesus in his service to God and that he will essentially boast in what Christ has accomplished through him. Later on, he refers to the gospel as my gospel. But I think to see it as that misses just how deep Paul's love is of Jesus and just how deep his trust is in God's greater plan and how secure his identity is in that plan. Just as I found myself so excited by my salvation when it first happened, Paul's retained this excitement, this life-changing ambition. And when you consider that his calling was given to him directly to God and he believed that, then of course he's not being arrogant in saying, thank you God for this ambition. The Bible talks about... um, Pharisees, church leaders around the times of Jesus who would do stuff like, oh, in prayer meetings, they go, thank you, God, for the gifts that you've given me. And they were saying that because they wanted people to hear that they had giftings. Now, that's not a problem for me, but the way I feel convicted in this is um, when, when I pray in a group, I quite like saying, like, yes, and our men, when other people are praying, because I think it says, like, we agree on things and it just gets me stirred up. 
But when it comes to people praying for me, I tend to go a little bit timid on that. So someone might be praying, you know, we thank you for Steve, we thank you for his gift in this. And I suddenly feel like, if I say yes and amen, is that like a bit like, I'm like yes, Lord, thank you for the gifting of this guy. <laughs> but actually, if we think, yeah, that gifting is from God, if I believe that God has given me giftings, and he's given giftings to all of us because he wants to believe his, uh, build his church, which I do believe, and yeah, let's bless it. I do thank God for the giftings he's given me. And Paul's doing that too. And how amazing is it that the only thing Paul will venture to speak of is the salvation that he's partnered with in God, the outworking of God's calling, of the ongoing power of the gospel in his life. That makes me consider if the only thing that I ventured to speak of was what God's done in my life, how different would my conversations be? How much would I have to say? So point three is that. Point four, evangelism is important and God is able to succeed through us. Evangelism is a spiritual gift. We taught... uh, a few weeks ago in Romans about spiritual gifts, and the Bible says some of you will have the gift of generosity, some of the gift will have, uh, will have the gift of loving, some the gift of mercy, some the gift of serving, some the gift of evangelism. So it can be tempting to think of evangelism as, well, I, don't, I might not have the evangelistic gift, so actually evangelism's for the evangelists. But it's not a sidebar issue. Bear with me with this. There's something very exciting I find in the way that Paul brings the good news of Jesus to people. In verse 16, Paul refers to himself as a minister to the Gentiles, but also in having a priestly duty in bringing them before God. Now, he probably used those words, minister and priest, so that the Gentiles and the Jews respectively would kind of understand the imagery that he's talking about. But he also goes on to describe his converts as offerings acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, sanctified feels like one of those scary theological words, but it's actually quite important. So it's kind of like... When we're saved at the beginning, we face this choice of, you know, we've been living in sin and we've been headed towards death, but actually we're offered this chance, and it says earlier in Romans, if we accept Jesus as our saviour in our hearts and proclaim it with our mouths, we are saved. And at that point, God looks on us and he sees us as saved. But actually, the gospel that Paul gives is so much more than just that. So there was a point in my Christianity where I think I had limited my salvation, what my Christianity, what my walk of faith was about, just to uh, the conversion experience. So it was almost this thing of, um, do you know what, I know I'm saved, and I was saved as quite a young man, and um, what do I do with the rest of my life? Like, is that enough? You know, can I do whatever I want because it says, oh, well, my sins will be forgiven. So do I just wait around for like five, six, seven decades and then get to the heavenly gates and go, um, hey, you'll see that my, uh, my decision was made about 50, 60 years ago, like I should be coming in kind of thing. And that's what I was doing. And, and we, we had a, um, a Bible study with um, both of Joe's sisters, one of whom I would say is not, I don't think she knows Jesus yet. And... Um, she, uh, one of the questions that she raised was this thing of like, but if you know that your sins are forgiven, then like, can you not just go on sinning? And that's even what, one of the things that Paul talks about earlier in Romans. But actually, as I said, this gospel is much more than this, and this is where sanctification comes in. It's basically this idea of like, we keep being saved. It means being made holy for God, but it means that he's putting us aside for things that he has for us to do. And it says we can only do it through the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that we're just like making the right decisions, I'm getting it really good, like my supernatural thing was my salvation, but since then like I'm doing it on my own. He says we need the Holy Spirit just as we needed the gospel to save us. So when in verse 18 Paul says that the only thing he dares to speak of is the work Jesus has done through him with the Gentiles, he doesn't say in getting them all to be converted, look I got all these people over the line, I got them all to sign this pledge, there you go, you can see it, you can believe it. He says that the thing he's really excited about is that they've been called to obedience to God. Now, obedience is one of those words that feels like it can get a bad rap because it conjures up this image of Christianity just being like a list of do's and don'ts. I do things because I can't, you know, like, oh, do you want to go to this party and get drunk? Oh, I would love to, but I can't because I'm a Christian. 
And he talks about this obedience, and I think this is basically part of that sanctification. And later on, he talks about his faithful obedience. So we don't need to do this from a place of begrudging, like, ah, go on then, I know I shouldn't. We do it from faithful obedience. And I think this works in two ways. One, if we're feeling really excited, if if we're gospeling ourselves, if we're owning the good news, but actually sometimes to do the right thing feels like, yeah, do you know what, I'm doing it from a place of overflow, I'm excited, it's no big deal for me to be obedient. But it's hard as well. They talk in the Bible about how... uh, you can take the wide path, which is the way to destruction and the life that we're living when we're full of sin, but that's easier. Or you can take the narrow path. Seriously, there were so many pictures that I went through online, and they were all like, oh, they were just like so like, they weren't good. Uh, have a look. If you want to type narrow path, uh, wide, wide path online, you'll see what I mean. This was the best one I could find. But it's more like this image of like following Jesus. It's not like, ah, oh, there's a narrow gap, and then I'm through on the other side, and I can live those 50, 60 years doing what I want. But actually, we go on living this narrow path, and there's this faithful obedience in it. And sometimes it's easy, and other times it's hard. But in those hard times, I want to have faith in my obedience that, God, that that is actually the best thing for me. It's not just a case of God saying I should do this, so go and I'll do this. But actually, faithfully, I believe the good news. I believe it's good news, so this must be better for me than the sin that is currently tempting me at the moment. A part of that full obedience is to tell the good news to other, others. And Paul tells us how we can do this, and he shows us in quite an incarnational way. Now, incarnational basically just means it's through and through him, and we've seen this with the gospel already. We've seen that he carries it. And the way that Paul evangelizes is to do it in everything he does. So in uh, a verse, let's say 18 to 19, he says something along the lines of, by what I have said and done, by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, that's miracles, and through the power of the Spirit of God, he says, I fully proclaimed the gospel, this gospel that calls people to faithful obedience. So in every way we can do this, in words. Verse 21, Paul says, those who, he's quoting Isaiah here, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Those who have not heard will understand. Are you aware that there are people who don't know Jesus, who've never heard of Jesus, but when you tell, they will understand? Yes. That's one of the ways we evangelize. Yes. Deeds. One of the other times that Paul uses the word ambition, he says, let it be your ambition that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Are you aware that there are times where you will make the right decision, you'll walk that narrow path, and someone will be looking at your life and saying, why did they do that? Why are they so convicted? It wasn't that they didn't go to the party, but they really wanted to go to the party. They went to the party but didn't get drunk, and they were looking out for people. Deeds, that's another way that we evangelize. Signs and wonders. I would love to talk at length on the topic of healing, but I'm obviously quite time-limited, so I'm just going to say some stuff. Uh, there are there are other signs and wonders out there, but I guess the first one that conjures up in my mind is healing. And we know from reading about Paul that he's seen loads of people be healed when he's prayed for them in Jesus' name. Now, I've prayed a lot for healing in church environments, uh, amongst family and friends. I've prayed for non-Christians. I've stopped people on the street who obviously have something wrong with them and prayed for them to be healed. And I don't feel like in my life I have seen someone get up out of a wheelchair, throw down their crutch, that kind of thing. But I have seen... I have seen it in, in a church I've been in. And I guess the thing for me, the challenge for me is, I believe it, right? In the Bible it says that Jesus, no one came to Jesus and asked to be healed and wasn't healed. It says that he gave that blessing to the apostles, to his disciples. They saw it in bags full as well. It says that the Holy Spirit will be with us. You'll be glad that my Holy Spirit is with you because through him you will see miracles and you'll see greater things than these. So my choice is either to say, hey, my experience is this. I've prayed for healing and I've not seen a great deal of it. So actually what the Bible's saying must be untrue. There must be a line that I'm missing the Bible says, unless you're Steve and you pray for people and you won't see healing, in which case you don't need to do it anymore. Or I can say the Bible doesn't say that, and it says eagerly pursue the greater gifts, and it says that the Holy Spirit will work for us to do those those things, 
and I try and make my experience more like what the Bible is. So that's the choice I feel like we're faced with. But we should be encouraged by it. You know, we should be ready to take a risk to be foolish in this. I think it was Stott, I've not written it down here. It says, words, words explain works, but works dramatize words. Words explain works, but works dramatize words. So that's why the apostles had such this ministry of signs and wonders, because they came in power and people could say, well, you know, are they lying about that or did I just see a miracle? But the key thing is it's about salvation here. Uh, Howard and I were talking about this uh, about a week ago, and he was saying that um, there was someone who had a deaf ear, I think it was, and had prayed for them, and his, uh, his deaf ear was healed, but this guy didn't become a Christian. Now, what would have been better for that guy in the long run is obviously for him to become a Christian and remain deaf. That, and, and that is a miracle as well. Yes. You know, it's a miracle for us to be saved. Um, yeah, there's more I'd love to say on it, but signs and wonders, that's the way as well we can evangelize. But the important one is through the Holy Spirit. These things only work through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that does them in us. It's the Holy Spirit by which we're sanctified. And Paul is saying it's the grace of God and through the Holy Spirit. Stott said it is the Holy Spirit who takes our feeble human words and confirms them with his divine power in the minds, hearts, consciences, and the wills of the hearers. Every conversion is a power encounter in which the Spirit, through the gospel, rescues and regenerates sinners. It's a miracle. I wasn't there for the moment when my sister-in-law took Jesus into her life, and there was an element of me that was like, oh, I would pray for decades, it would have been amazing if I could have been there. But then immediately I was thinking, no, I feel like it's even more miraculous. This is, this is how God does it. He does it aside from us. I wasn't involved in it, so I can't say it's a lot because of this guy as well. God did it. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that she didn't believe in God, and two years later she has a relationship with Jesus. Yes. So four ways loosely, badly written, that we should be getting caught up in this. And in this first section of the passage, we've got an insight into how the gospel goes on saving us and is by its very nature to be shared. We also should feel stirred as Paul gospels us, he gives the good news to us again, to have this good news as our key ambition, our driver in life. Paul's explained to the Roman church why it's so important for him to have reminded them of these things. In this picture that I said earlier of Paul as a pioneer, and here I'm going to like feel really silly because I meant to read a bit more about pioneers so I could say this with strength. Uh, but presumably, the further west they travelled, they had to ask people to go with them. So they had to make the choice. Once they'd settled in the east, here's a poster, which I didn't put together, so it must have happened. They were encouraging people to go further west with them. They weren't happy just settling where they were, but they wanted to settle more land. And, again, I'm assuming this must be the case, if you were going to go, you needed people to go with you. You couldn't just go on your own. You'd need other people to help you cut through to make those paths, to build the houses. You'd need doctors. You'd want your family with you. Mm. So in this picture of Paul as a pioneer, he's asking people to come with them to settle the next area, but he's also telling them how to settle. He's planting a church. We're a church plant. We need to... Uh, be called into this both part of pioneering and settling that Paul is talking about here. And he doesn't leave them in suspense as to what they should do about it. Paul tells the Romans what he's going to do through this next section, but it's not in some incidental way. It's not like he had a spare, spare page of papyrus to fill on this letter, but to catch them up, to catch us up in God's greater plan to spread the good news of Jesus. So I just really quickly want to say five specific ways he says we can be involved. In verse 23, Paul says that there's no more place for him to work in these regions. At first read, that's astonishing, because Paul hasn't been to every city, town and village in Asia Minor or the Middle East. In fact, earlier, Paul mentions that he went as far as Lyricum, which is modern-day Croatia, and he never even went that far north. So is he lying? Is he being haphazard? Is he being forgetful? Clearly not. 
He's being strategic in the way that he does things. This is why he missed out so many villages, because he went to the places where he knew that God would spread following God's will. We're told that Paul spent two years in Ephesus, and through that, and that was the only place he went in Asia Minor, the whole of Asia Minor was gospeled. And what about the Roman church? We've mentioned already that they were a small church of about five households, so possibly no bigger than us, and yet he was confident that a church the size of us would have enough to influence a city of one million, the most influential city in the world. In verse 19, Paul tells us that he's fully preached the gospel, and we know, having looked already, that that means that it goes on saving us, and it carries within it the motive for us to spread it further. That's what our faith does. That's how I felt when I turned 15, you know, and met Jesus. In verse 14... Paul tells this small and divided church scattered around this enormous metropolis that he's convinced that they're full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. He trusts God when he says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast working its way through the dough. So the first way that Paul is calling us up into this bigger picture is to evangelise our city around us. He's planted these small churches and he's planted them outward facing. That's something we can do. Tim Keller says, Christianity is a missional faith. It contains within it its own message, the motive for sharing it. We need to believe that. We can evangelise where we've been planted and where we're settling at the moment. The second way Paul invites the Romans and us into the bigger picture of God's gospel is to church plant. Paul could have chosen to move to Rome for a comfortable life as a city of prosperity and wealth. But instead, his ambition, as always, was for the gospel. He said, according to God's will, I plan to go to Spain and start a new ministry. And not just that, but that... But he's currently in Greece and he's about to head to Jerusalem first, which is quite a dangerous journey for him because there are a lot of Jews there who wanted him dead from his earlier times, and then go back to Rome and then on to Spain. It's like a 3,000-mile trip. Paul is basically willing to be planted wherever he he can be. He is totally loose and free for the gospel, and for some of us, we'll be called to church plant as well. I was praying for our um, God First community. Uh, God First communities are our midweek groups um, that we meet in the other day, and we fully believe in them that we've got the opportunity with them uh, to develop community, to disciple one another, and to build our hearts for mission. But we also don't think the midweek groups are an end, a means to an end. We recognise, all the ends in themselves, sorry, we, we think they are the means to the end. We recognise that this is part of our faithful obedience because we want to get stuck into these things, and it's a good discipline for us. But I was thinking, Lord, you know, like I look at your early church, and they were like meeting every day after work. You know, they were selling everything they had. They were just, they wanted, they were doing, they were doing those midweek meetings just out of an overflowing desire to do it. And I was like, ah, oh, Lord, like talk to me about the early church. And I felt him give me a picture, which I'm still milling over, of... Um, a pile of leaves. The, church, the early church was like a pile of leaves. And when his spirit blew on it, the leaves just scattered everywhere. And if you look at it, that is what happened to the early church. They were just ready to be moved and it needed to happen because the good news needed to be spread from Jerusalem at that point. But they were people who weren't rooted. They were willing to be moved. And I said, what about us? And I saw a picture of uh, a tree with roots in the ground. And when the wind blew against it, it didn't have that same level of movement. Now, I've not finished mulling this word through, that picture through, so I think there are things, I don't think it's, uh, you should be like that pile of leaves, you know, I think there are other things we're called to as well. But it also made me think, you know, we need to be open to being moved like that pile of leaves. We need to say that there are people in this room who probably will be church planters, and we should be encouraging them, we should be talking about it, we should be interested in the church plants that are a part of our network, the network of churches we're a part of called Advance, like Dar es Salaam and Tony Pandy. So number two, some of us will be called to church plant. Number three, we're called to support church planters. Paul starts his whole letter of Romans saying that he's eager to travel there so they can be encouraged by one another. In verse 32, he says, if it's my will for me, uh, God's will, sorry, uh, for me to come to Rome, I trust that we'll refresh each other in in our company. 
He's not looking to meet the Roman church for the first time because they've earned it or because he thinks it would be really cool there. He's looking to make a new base for mission. He's, in a way, you're saying he's looking to use the Roman church, but he's saying it will be mutually beneficial for them. He's expecting that he will be supported as a church planter there. We too, if we're not called in this season to church plant, should be looking to support churches. As I said before, we should be interested in what's going on in Tony Pandy, Dar es Salaam, and praying for God's blessing on them. Four, Paul invites us to give our money. Verses something like 25 to 29. Paul tells the Romans that he's going to Jerusalem first because he's got to take an offering there from Macedonia and Achaia. Now, there was poverty in Jerusalem at the time because there'd be a famine, but interestingly, Paul doesn't use that as a reason to motivate what's going on. He doesn't say, hey, I need to tell you about this famine, it's really bad, like if you give you know, the price of a coffee a week, then you can help build this in Jerusalem. Instead, he's saying Macedonia and Achaia, who are two churches where elsewhere he says that they themselves are in poverty. He says, out of the overflow, out of this faithful obedience, they want to give their money. Yes. And we should be inspired by this. We might have a range of financial situations in the church, but trust me, as a church, we are rich. I think it's right in saying if you earn the average wage in the UK, you're in the top 5% of wealth globally, something like that. For us, we need to hear this story and think this is the equivalent of the church in Tony Pandy set in one of the poorest regions in the UK, or Dar es Salaam, who've been planted for how long? And they're about to do another church plant and they're giving money away. It's, it's us hearing that these churches are doing this thing and thinking, what are we doing? Now, praise God, I don't think we're missing out on the blessing. We had this gift day last year and we're working towards this 20% giving, but we should be stirred up by this. I am, um, when I was praying last year for the church about finances, uh, I'd just been reading this article on Nigeria, just like a background on them economically, socially, politically. And they described Nigeria as being in the breadbasket of Africa, by which they mean that the region is particularly good for agriculture in terms of environment, fertile soil, that kind of thing. So naturally, there's a lot of produce there which kind of gives them a head start financially. And I, this word really stuck with me, breadbasket. When I was praying for us and finances, I thought, God, let us be seen as a breadbasket financially as yes, a church. Yes. We're in a rich town. We're a rich ter- uh, church. Wouldn't it be good if people looked and said, God first, give faithfully. They give obediently. They give out of overflow because they're rich. They're a breadbasket. Yeah, they're planting churches. They're able to support us. And fifth, Paul calls the church to join him in struggle through prayer. When my ambition was to get uh, my career started, I'm absolutely confident that the year, that year before, my, the prayer that I prayed most was about work. It was, God, can I get this job? God, can I get this job? God, can I get this job? God, may the interview go well. God, please may therefore I did well at the interview, this kind of thing. Now that was okay. Um, I think God has blessed, uh, the, the work has blessed me, it's blessed my family. I think there's things for me to do there. But actually, if the gospel is our central ambition, that should be the prayer we're praying for most. We should be praying for different countries. We should be praying for salvation. We should be praying at our uh, monthly prayer meeting. We should be looking to meet in twos and threes and praying. So there's five things I think he gives us practically. Now, guys, I don't think I'm called to go to Spain. And I chatted with Howard about this, and he said he doesn't speak Spanish, so he's not going to retire there. Um, I... At the moment in my life, I would say that I don't feel particularly called to go to one of the nations in the world that are still unreached. Uh, that image I have of us as a tree rooted, you know, I don't think those roots are necessarily bad things, but some of them will be stuff like ambitions, and some of them will be that I'm just not ready to move. But I also don't feel like I've got a specific word for that. But in sitting with this passage for the last few weeks, I absolutely feel called to make the gospel my ambition and to get caught up in the bigger picture plan of God. I said at the beginning um, how I'm really keen in doing yearly plans, and... Um, I feel really blessed, so I bought a house, I started a family, I started a career, and I, 
I, I'm not unthankful for those things, seriously. I recognise that they don't happen to everyone. I feel totally blessed. But one thing that I do keep thanking God for is that they happened to me at a relatively young stage of my life. Because when I was doing my year plan this year, when I kind of ticked off the final one of them, I realised, like, man, what are my ambitions in life now? Like, have I done it all? Like, am I in that grey period where I just wait till I get to heaven? But instead, like, I feel the stuff that God has been talking to me about is more of him. It's more about his gospel. So the things at the top of my list this year are getting Sabbath right and salvation. Now, I flipping love talking about Sabbath at the moment, so if you want to talk to me about that, let's do it afterwards. Uh, but salvation as well. I got to the end of the year, and I was like, God, you've got to keep making me sick for it. Like, hasn't he been talking to us as a church about mission? Hasn't he been talking to us about salvation for like a year now? And I think it's good. You know, when I first put career on my ambitions, I didn't get a career the next day. I got it eight years later. It's okay. Like, you know, we need to work towards it. We need to um, love one another in it. We need to have grace with ourselves just as God has grace with us. But we need to work towards it. And I was like, God, you've got to make me sick if I don't see it this year. And then Joe's sister, we found out the good news that she'd come to God. And it reminded me why. It's that faithful obedience thing of actually, do you know what? If we partner in that, seeing salvation is like the best thing. Seriously, it's deep speaks to deep. It has made me so excited to see more salvation. She was going to die and she was going to go to hell, but now she's going to heaven. It's really exciting. It makes me want to see more of it. I want us to land, uh, as this is the last one we're doing on Romans, on verses 25, 27 of 16, the last chapter. Now, at first read, uh, this can seem really complicated because it is. Um, I'll explain it to you really briefly, but it's like I had to like read it three or four times to get it. Basically, what Paul's done here is he's given you a sentence, and in the middle of that sentence, there's a sentence, and in the middle of that sentence, there's another sentence, and in the middle of that sentence, there's another sentence, and the grammar is just not very helpful. Uh, so, so he's basically saying, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. And by the way, the gospel is the message I proclaimed about Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's in keeping with the revelation of a mystery that was hidden for long ages past, which, by the way, has now been revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, which, by the way, is so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to him. Amen. So now you all understand that. Um, but I think the thing I wanted to talk about this, and I'm going to steal one of Howard's phrases for this, is that this basically feels like what you happens when you double-click on Paul about gospel. It's like Paul's, Paul's written this letter. There's kind of like a, an ending bit in 15, because he says amen. And then he starts 16, and he thinks, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. I mean, it's almost like, you know, I've got to end it by saying something about God. That's how I would do it, Paul's obviously just doing it naturally. And, you know, you know maybe it'd just be like, uh, glory be to God, amen, kind of thing. But he just can't help himself. Like, if he starts talking about it, he's like, now to him who is able to establish you, oh, by which I mean the message of Jesus Christ, by, by which, by the way, was like a mystery for ages, but now it's been revealed, which, by the way, means for Gentiles are now saved, which, by the way, means that now they're called to obedience to him. Come on, it's good. Yes. And it made me feel challenged again about my salvation. You know, like, is that how I feel about the gospel? Sometimes it is. But don't you want to feel like that about the gospel? Don't you want someone to say to you, like, what do you mean by the, why do you go to church? You know, I was thinking a lot when I was telling people about um, this weekend, I was preparing for my sermon. I was like, I can say an easy thing and say it in terms they'll understand. I'm, I'm preaching this weekend at my church. Um, or what are you preaching on? The book of Romans. And I was like, or I can like take it as an opportunity to say, like, you know, we're preaching. This is why we do preaching. And what, what are you preaching on? I'm talking about Jesus and how the good news is really important. I want to be like that when I get double-clicked on the gospel. Yes. That last bit says, to him who is able. It started uh, Romans, Paul started Romans by saying that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. We're saved by the gospel. And he ends by saying that by this same gospel, God establishes us. He keeps on saving us. He sanctifies us for these things he's got for us. He who is able. He who is able is Jesus.
This is the good news. So let's gospel ourselves now. So we're going to um, break bread together. It might be a good time for the band to come back. Sorry, I didn't really think ahead. Uh, oh! Yeah, just fan out. Why, why not? Um, this is the gospel, guys. This is the kind of thing that we do regularly, but actually we want to be getting excited about. It says in Corinthians, if I can find it, that Jesus said, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Is that gluten-free again? It's so easy to break. No, it's gluten-free. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is our new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, for whenever, you, or no, and for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. This is gospeling ourselves again. By doing this, by remembering that Jesus has died for us, and because of that, we're saved. And because of that, we're no longer headed towards death. But we've got this good news inside us, which is intrinsically to be shared with other people. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.